Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Good evening, Ryan and Jonathan. We are missing Peter. It's a little too late for him in the Midwest as we had to push our recording out. Uh, so we are missing the Peter this week, but uh, he'll be back with us. Yeah, it's like a Bond villain. You know, you've got to have a full 12 hours in his rejuvenation chamber or something. Otherwise, <laughs> he wakes up looking like a skeleton the next day. <laughs> I mean, he does look yeah. like the Russian from uh, from that TV show. <laughs> So it's American gods. <laughs> he looks just like the Russian right now with his full beard and full hair. You know, he hasn't had a haircut in you know a year now of COVID. So yeah, you know, just he's got a yeah, he's got a rejuvenation. Looking that good takes a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, I get it. All right. Well, we have a busy week. Ignite was this week. So they, of course, dropped a ton of news that we will talk about. But let's start up with AWS first. Amazon is easing your voice app development with the Alexa conversations now generally available. Amazon claims it's the first and only AI-based dialogue manager for voice app development. Originally announced at Remars last year. Wait, Remars happened? I did it. <laughs> the tool shrinks the lines of code necessary to create voice apps from 5,500 down to 1,700, leveraging AI to better understand intents and utterances. Developers don't have to define them. Amazon also says conversations reduce Alexa interactions that might have taken 40 exchanges to a dozen or so. Two innovations are behind this product. First, a dialogue simulator and a conversations-first modeling architecture. And the dialogue simulator generalizes a small number of sample dialogues, while the modeling architecture leverages the generated dialogue to train deep learning-based models to support dialogues. Since beta, if you were trying on the beta out, they have added improved error messages, dialogue cloning, command line interface support, and enhanced authoring workflows, and an updated app design guide. Mm. I plugged by, what's it called, the little dot thing, the Amazon dot. And the first thing he asked me is if he could turn on this conversational mode so he could keep listening for you know extra context after the thing. That was pretty cool. The demo they provided as part of the the announcement though, I think I thought it really sucked. Like if trying to market the conversational abilities of the of the tool, they cut together like ten separate sections of conversations into the into the video. So I wanted to hear a whole conversation. I wanted to hear how you could condense forty sentences down to twelve. The best they did was maybe like two exchanges before they cut to the next person. That was a little disappointing. The other thing was the use of the words like actually I'd like to see something else. I kind of wonder how much it relies on those kind of cues to know it needs to look back to the previous the previous intent versus actually sort of being smart about it. But it's it is not it is nice though. Google's well, done a similar thing already with their conversational skills, which makes it nice to book hotels and restaurants and that kind of thing, but I st- still think I'm a little disappointed in the, the voice of Alexa, though. Like, the conversation is still kind of a little robotic. And I know some of the new Poly voices are much better than the current Alexa voice, but I guess it's their brand voice, and it's going to be hard for them to change that. I mean, it's it's one of those things. Like, as someone who just dabbles in arguing with robots, like, the, the more natural voices to me are, I don't know, a little off-putting, so I like the, the fairly robotic robotic voice. But I mean, as far as like cues and, you know, how these things are developed, that's the whole machine learning model, right? So that as you train it, it's going to listen to your frames of speech and either require those cues or not, depending on how you talk. Yeah. I mean, when we can replace ourselves with the conversational AI bots, we have a Google and an Alexa dot and maybe an Apple one, I guess, since Microsoft doesn't really have one. Siri. We have that. No, that's, oh, that's Apple's. Microsoft, Microsoft, oh, sorry, Microsoft is uh, is uh, Cortana, but it's not really a it's not a puck, so I can't put them on a table and put a microphone between them to do the podcast for us, unfortunately. So or make them fight bot fights. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, you know, they did bring back uh, battle bots yeah. Yeah. on Discovery. I've been seeing some video clips. I'm like, I gotta get the kids into that. I think that's awesome. 
Well, at last week's Amazon event, the machine learning, we mentioned this briefly that they announced the Amazon Lookout for Vision is now generally available, and I panned it here on the show. <laughs> but then I did the I read the press release because I was curious, and it was a little bit cooler, so I thought we should maybe talk about it. So this is a cloud service that analyzes images using computer vision to spot product or process defects and anomalies in manufactured goods. And manufactured tasks apparently can be error prone when humans are in the loop, with twenty three percent of unplanned downtime in manufacturing coming from human error. Whereas as low as 9% in other segments. Apparently not IT, though, because our number is way higher than 20 <laughs> Look out for vision addresses this with AI, which lets it detect manufacturing and production defects in products, including cracks, dents, incorrect colors, and irregular shapes from their appearances. And the service can process thousands of images an hour and requires no upfront commitment or minimum fee. After reviewing the images, the system reports differences from baseline via the service dashboard or a real-time API. And Amazon claims it's sophisticated enough to maintain accuracy even with variances in camera angle, pose, lighting from changes in the workday, and much more. There are some interesting use cases they mentioned here. So first of all, DaftGuards is using it to automate the inspection of its production line and detect whether pizzas, hamburgers, and quiches have the right toppings on them. And Amazon's using it for the print-on-demand facility, which prints books for customers and using it to look out to automate and scale visual inspection of each step of the book manufacturing process. Pay for this in two models. First, the visual training mode, which runs at $2 per training hour, and then the inference when you're actually running the images through it will cost you about $4 per hour and scale down to as much as low as $2.80 per hour with high volumes. So the robots are talking for us and they're looking for us. This is great. We will be soon just like sitting around doing nothing, eating bonbons. Mm. Can't wait. I have a friend who makes dice. I'm going to give him a free plug on the show, skullsplitterdice.com for D&D. And he makes these uh, nice dice sets in pretty cases that look like you know, treasure chests and things like this. And th- those are all manufactured in China. And he had a very hard time with the quality control, not because the cost of the actual units that we're making was particularly excessive, but it's actually the cost of shipping big-ass heavy metal dice to the US only to find that a lot of them are defects. And so I helped him try and find a solution. We didn't find a solution a couple of years ago we would have had to sort of hand roll something. So this is absolutely ideal for the type of manufacturing that you want to do cheaply because quality control costs a lot of money. I mean, manufacturing is cheap, but to pay somebody to do the level of QC that you expect, I mean, customers are more discerning, I think. Well, somebody, you know, who earns pennies per the hour, manufacturing in a factory thinks is good enough is not necessarily what the, you know, the Amazon consumer thinks is good enough. And so this is awesome. I can see a lot yeah. of people, especially Amazon, who are obviously going to be making a bunch of stuff for Amazon Basics line. This is going to be critical for them. Yeah. Or, I mean, no, without even just making stuff, just what's in the bin for the delivery, that kind of thing. You know, there's all kinds of practical uses for this. Anything that requires a visual inspection and anything where a human is having to do, especially routine or mundane inspections over and over and over, you know, it's going to be higher error rates. Than computers that don't know the difference. There's all kinds of really cool manufacturing use cases that AI and machine learning can help with. This is one of the most obvious ones, but there's a ton of others. I used to work for a company. My very first IT job actually was cardboard manufacturer. So we made cardboard sheets. So then that went to a, a, another plant where they actually turned those sheets into boxes. But you know, like you have a 110 inch wide corrugating machine that makes a 110 inch sheet, and you're trying to put these boxes into that in the right way to minimize waste. And so it's really cool because you can using all kinds of skills to kind of basically put the boxes onto the sheets the best way to reduce the dunnage and reduce the waste for the product. But now with AI and machine learning, you can even do that much more effectively than we could back in the late 2000s when I was doing that. Well, we talked about this a little bit when they released the LA local region, 
that Amazon already had one in Osaka. <laughs> and there was a bit of confusion because it wasn't exactly named the same thing as the new mini regions, which are tied back to like larger US West 2 type regions. So apparently Amazon decided they're going to fix that problem. <laughs> and so they are now converting the Osaka local region in Japan to a full standard AWS region with three availability zones, ending the confusion between what a local region and a local region is. <laughs> so now we don't longer have that showing that this is now, they now have an actual DR capability for Japanese customers directly in Japan, which is great versus going to Singapore or Australia or one of the other many APAC regions that they could have gone to in the past. I have to wonder now if this was the plan all along or was this strictly in reaction to the local stuff in Southern California where people didn't quite understand the differences between the two. I think it's growth because I, I looked up to see what the cloud growth was like in Japan because it's not something that hits our news very often. And the mm. International Trade Association, who actually advocates for US businesses, but they, they also report on things happening in the rest of the world, they estimated cloud growth at like 20% a year between now and 2024 in Japan, wow. which is huge. So I know Amazon are also making a push there for e-commerce like they are in the rest of the world. But I, I suspect that the need to grow that into a full zone is, or a full region is is probably demand and also their own use cases. Makes sense. I mean, I think Japan and, and most of the Asia packet regions are growing exponentially in the cloud space. You know, I'd say they were a little bit late to start compared to some of the other countries, but they've rapidly caught up to everyone else in what they're doing. Well, the AWS Deep Racer League, I don't know if you remember this, it was this thing where we physically took these little cars and we put them on a track and we raced them around at reInvent. In socks. That was a thing, you know, and we had a we had a whole league they announced, you know, two years ago at reInvent and you could compete. And then if you won, you could go to reInvent as a winner. And apparently that all went virtual during COVID and I just didn't pay attention to that. So apparently it's been running as a virtual event for the last year. They've had participants from several different countries win prizes and every month throughout the time. But apparently it's gotten dominated by experts who know what they're doing. And there's it's really no shot for newcomers, which kind of defeats the whole purpose of a of racing league that's supposed to help you introduce to AI machine learning. And so apparently they're going to be breaking up the new season into an open and pro division, which will allow them to be more opportunities for you to win, no matter the level of skill that you have. The new season starts March 1st, which was the other day, and will end in end of October. They have not announced that there will be a big prize to go to potentially reInvent because we don't know if reInvent will happen or not. And basically the process for them to determine if you are in the open league or the pro league is every month. If you're in the top 10% of the open league, you'll get kicked over to the pros. So just be 11%, top 11% <laughs> to be fine. I remember the first one I saw where it was very clear that it was a pro or a ringer. All the other ones are jerky motion and veering off track. And there's one that just goes in a straight line down the center of the track the whole way. So it was it was like it was very clear <laughs> the beginning of the end. And I was surprised it took as long as it did, actually. Yeah. I'm not surprised it's gone the way it has, though, with being dominated by experts. It seems to be that every every video game, every online game kind of ends up like that, where you have the experts that just totally trance everybody else and then mm -hmm. puts the newcomers off completely because, you know, what fun is it to join and just be, just be killed constantly. So that's why I don't play. Call of Duty with Xbox with uh, Justin anymore. Yeah, that's it. That's why. <laughs> it was Halo. Halo. <laughs> I yeah, don't play Peter Call of Duty. Call of Duty. <laughs> Justin plays Halo. Me and Jonathan just suck at video. I, mean, I, I would play Call of Duty. I would play Call of Duty too. I just no one's ever asked me to, so I haven't. I have to do that one when the kids are asleep. Because my wife is the thing with killing other humans in a video game. She's okay with it if you are killing aliens. But, uh, you know, killing other humans, that's kind of crosses the line for her that she's not okay with. So that one had to be done after the kids went to bed. So that's a bummer. The aliens have it coming. They do. Yeah. Those darn trying to act like those rings in Halo. Darn it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to GCP. So GCP wrote this massively long blog post that I have summarized as best I can. 
But I can actually double summarize it because I can basically tell you this is GK Autopilot, revolution in managed Kubernetes. And what this really is, is Kubernetes Fargate on Google. So this is basically what they're giving you. Google highlights the success behind completely revolutionary IT operations and Kubernetes becoming the de facto standard for organizations looking for advanced container orchestration. And then organizations need the highest levels of reliability, security, and scalability in their apps. Choose the GKE service. And in the second quarter alone, apparently there was more than 100,000 companies that use GKE and application modernization platforms on top of Google. But they did admit that Kubernetes has still involved a fair bit of manual assembly and tinkering to optimize it for your needs. So they are introducing for you GKE Autopilot, a revolutionary mode of operation for managed Kubernetes. Let's you focus on your software while GKE manages these, the infrastructure for you. Optimized for production-ready clusters, Autopilot offers a strong security posture and opts from the configuration, reducing the need to learn the nitty-gritty details of cluster configuration. And this is a pretty nice thing. If you want to still have all those great knobs and levers because you are a sadist, you can still do that with the GKE standard offering. But now you can select the GKE Autopilot offering when deploying all of your clusters. The first one is free, of course. Everyone after that is $0.10 per hour on top of a bunch of vCPU and memory and ephemeral storage prices which after it's in the point zero zero four four five thing, I actually wrote this out this time, so now I can tell you the GK Autopod memory pricing is 49,225 10 millionths per hour. So there you go. I thought I'd impress you all with that. After I screwed that up last time, there is a quite a nice uh, comparison chart in the article that'll tell you all the differences between the autopilot and the non-autopilot version, so you will know. There are some limitations that you should be aware of. Uh, be careful, this is still very early and something to be aware of. And the nice thing is that you get the Google SRE team to now manage your Kubernetes pods and nodes. So Google SRE now has to solve mm-hmm. your problems. Nice. I think they like misfired and used the word manage a little bit too soon with GKE. When I think of a managed service, I think this is what I think of as a managed service, not something that they half-ass manage and you have to manage the other half, the half that goes wrong. But doesn't autopilot sound like an Oracle product? (laughs) (laughs) The Oracle autonomous Kubernetes has to be coming soon, right? This is priced like aggressively. I was expecting it to be a lot more, quite honestly, because it's it's not free, but I guess it is something that sort of they've got very high optimization, very probably run it very efficiently. Well, again, I mean, they've been talking about how they're trying to build more massive and larger sized Kubernetes clusters. Like, what's the segmentation of this? Like, is it really big boxes and they're just carving it up into lots of thousands of customers and they're able to really spread the cost out? Because most companies don't properly utilize their instances anyways. Especially not once you're into Kubernetes, unless your job is to manage that utilization, which is usually the core central team, right? Maybe it saves Google money. That'd be, you know, it would explain some of the costs. But I mean, it, it does make it very sort of like, why would I, why would I run my own cluster, <laughs> cost-wise? I mean, uh, as soon as they abstract away the kubectl commands to just say, go configure something in a GUI. I mean, we've completely mm-hmm. killed Kubernetes. We've gone full. We've gone full circle. That's how mm-hmm. it'll work out. I mean, there's enough CI/CD tooling and pipelines that you can just ship it without even running any of the kubectl stuff these days. So it's all YAML, baby. YAML all the time. So, so horrible. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Google is doing something I actually think is pretty innovative and revolutionary in some ways. And then you realize it's just risk insurance. And so maybe that's not so exciting. But they're basically announcing the new risk protection program where Google is working hard to be your tested cloud provider and are committed to delivering secure experiences to their customers and enhancing trust in their cloud ecosystems. And one of the areas they want to help you is in risk management, and Google saw an opportunity to provide more assurances and further drive digital transformation through closer integration with their risk management program. And so they are excited to announce a first-of-its-kind partnership between 
major cloud provider and a leading cyber insurance company called the Risk Protection Program. And this is a partnership between Alliance Global Corporate and Specialty and Munich RE, who have designed a specialized cyber insurance exclusivity for Google Cloud customers called Protection Plus. Quote here from Jody Yee, Managing Director. We partnered with our industry peer, Munich RE, to design this policy specifically for cloud technology users from the ground up. We recognized that by working with Google Cloud, we are able to better understand customers' risk through more insightful data. And these additional insights allow us to not only reward Google Cloud customers with their more efficient insurance purchasing and better policy terms, but also allow us to help drive customers to take a proactive security stance by tying premium pricing to actual security posture. And so part of that thing is kind of innovative is they're talking about moving you from the shared responsibility model to the shared fate model. And this is where Google is much more prescriptive in how they approach security. They provide you the ways to baseline your security against their blueprints and really give you a much more prescriptive guidance. Some of the other cloud providers, Amazon, don't really like to get prescriptive guidance in the security space. They like to let you cut yourself many times before they help you on this kind All of right, stuff. Are you done? Because I'm having a hard time holding the laughter. And they, <laughs> they, <laughs> sure, they, sure they, of course. Hang on, so to summarize, Google want me to pay for insurance in case their cloud goes down. <laughs> yep. Well, I mean, you, that's part of it. But there's also the hacking and all the other different things that are all part. And you, know, if you're providing a SaaS company, you have to have cybersecurity insurance. Like, there's just you can't do business with lots of companies. So they're basically saying, you know, and they're not saying exactly the same thing. But you may be getting a better rate because the cyber company can actually validate your security through all the APIs. Just like we talked about compliance many times here. We should get a better rate for compliance testing and SOC and ISO and all that kind of stuff because they can go validate our configuration with a simple API call. Okay. I'm still trying to figure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, well, I guess my fate is already tied to my cloud provider. Like if they go down, I can't host anything. And if that's my well-being and my financial security, it's gone. That's cool. And I, I do like the prescriptive security because that is a big gap that you don't see. But I still, the, the whole tying it to insurance thing is very confusing to me. No, I mean, I'd like to see the tooling that they're going to provide to help people manage compliance and security in the cloud. Because that's something everyone should have. Yeah. And uh, pro tip, it's not it's not. Done I mean, you're, really, you're really simplifying underwriting. You're going through a mortgage or you're going through whatever other thing and you have to provide all this documentation to prove what you're saying to the mortgage banker. It's the same thing with the insurance company for cyber. You have to prove how many PHI records do you have? How many PI records do you have? How many... What's your access model? Do you? There's all kinds of controls they had to do. And so if you can just say, look, here's our Google console or Google tool that tells you that we've complied with this thing or how many records we have and they can track it over time, I think it it simplifies the whole process and automates away the complexity for the business side of the company. As a technologist at the ground level, you probably don't care about this at all. But someone in the legal office cares well, today a lot. today I learned that there's such this. a thing as cybersecurity insurance. Like I didn't – this isn't a concept I knew existed because the idea seems preposterous to me. Who would be willing to front that? There's insurance for everything. I know. Like, <laughs> if there's a dollar to be made, someone's willing to take that risk. But it's crazy to me. Like, I can't imagine being the underwriter back behind. You're, you're someone who has to sort of fund this financially. Like, it sucks to be the customer, though. Like, it's your data at risk in the cloud, and the choice is made to pay for insurance rather than paying for better security. <laughs> Well, I mean, I don't think you can believe the way that cybersecurity claim works, and I'm not an expert in this, but I believe you have to be showing that you are doing certain things to try to not be negligent. And if they can prove your negligence, then the cybersecurity won't pay out. No, so it's like all insurance. They're just going to do whatever they can to not actually be useful for of you course, when, they, when you need them most. Well, yeah, actually, <laughs> yeah. But you know, when you went and signed that big deal with so and so bank, they required that you had a policy for cybersecurity, <laughs> so that way they feel they're protected on a liability front. It's it's just it's insurance yeah. all the way down. 
Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Well, if you have enjoyed outsourcing all of your BI needs to BigQuery and you use it to all of your heavy processing and lifting of your Cur reports potentially from Amazon, which is a great use case for BigQuery. It really, really just put your Cur file right in there and just query away. But you, maybe you weren't so happy with the UI aspects of it. And so you want a better UI for all those executives who want cybersecurity insurance. That's where you would potentially use something like Looker, which is Google's tool. But apparently Google is now making it easier for other tools to access the BI engine of BigQuery natively, such as Tableau and Power BI without requiring any changes to those tools. To do this, revamp the BI engine with a distributed in-memory execution engine for always fast experiences. And the BI engine utilizes modern techniques such as vectorized processing, advanced data encoding, adaptive caching, and query plans tuned for in-memory execution. And there are several advantages using BigQuery BI engine, including super fast, simplified architecture, and smart tuning. And if you're excited about this, you can submit the preview enrollment form and get 10 weeks at no cost during the preview phase. This is pretty cool, actually, because... You know, as someone who just needs to put together a quick demonstration of why I'm not crazy and the sky is falling, this is too expensive. Tableau is a little heavy for a tool when I just want to sort of visualize that. And so tools like BigQuery, those are much more to my liking. And so other tool and other parts of the business, they're going to need that deep Tableau sort of integration. So this is, I see this as like the BI team and the engineering team sort of getting what they want, which I like. So is, is this them just adding SQL support to BigQuery or do they have SQL support before, but they've extended it to be more compatible with those other tools? I'm not sure. It's basically making it yeah, more compatible. So. They've always had a SQL interface for BigQuery for quite a while. Looker's a great tool for what as well. I mean, it makes QuickSight look really terrible. Well, uh, not, that's <laughs> yeah, not but, that, all, or that hard. But. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, having written Crystal Reports back many years ago, I was Crystal Report admin and I used to write them and just watching my Crystal Reports just bog down trying to process gobs of data. And that was, we didn't have as much data as we have now. I can't imagine trying to make Crystal on a desktop try to do any of that heavy duty querying and calculations <laughs> of data. Off, offloading all of that to the BI engine on BigQuery and then just saying, give me the results set and then I'll put it into a pretty format in Crystal Reports. That seems like a really great scenario. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if your data's in the cloud and you do the analysis in the cloud, you want the BI people who are you know, usually stuck in their ways anyway and want to use the tools that they know, it makes sense to, to hook it up like this. It's good. Mm-hmm. So apparently after AWS announced private marketplace and Azure announced private marketplace, Google, who was first to market with April 2019 announcement of Google private marketplace, felt maybe a little jealous. And so they decided that they are going to announce support for Terraform and so they've been doing a bunch of other things in addition to Terraform. The first up is, of course, the Terraform thing. So you now can ingest and deploy Terraform configurations, which also allow you to deploy infrastructure without installing Terraform, 
with a note that you stay tuned for additional features that should to enhance the Terraform experience. HashiCorp, uh, you should uh, probably check your licensing terms. <laughs> <on that one. laughs> easier to manage products. Traditionally, you create products under a single catalog. And this made it easy to manage your products at a catalog level, but made it difficult if you wanted to include a product in multiple catalogs or give a list of all products in the organization. They've now decoupled catalogs from products, so now you can link them together in all kinds of terrible, horrible ways to make it easier to currently report, which is sort of the anti-pattern to that, but apparently it's not in the Google parlance. They have now given you catalog IAM permissions. So you can now reset the folder and the project level, allowing more delegation of authority and org admins. Uh, as apparently, you used to have to be an ad an owner of the marketplace to be able to do anything, which was too grand. It was not granular enough for most organizations, and it was previously difficult to view shared catalogs and owners. Which is now fixed with metadata and governance controls, which are always so sexy. And that is Google's answer to the private marketplace. The Terraform thing I think is interesting, especially with the little tease they gave us about you know stay tuned for additional Terraform features. That could be very, very yeah, interesting. That's how HashiCorp adopted the SSPL. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. People visiting from episode 155. <laughs> told you so. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It would make sense that Google would be the one to kind of take that road because they've bet pretty heavily into the Terraform ecosystem as kind of their model because they don't have their own version of CloudFormation. They don't have what Azure has. They, they just kind of gone Terraform native. And so it makes sense that they would want to build tools and things to make Terraform better, which would look very similar to Terraform Enterprise. <laughs> so it would make it would make sense that, that that might be where that becomes an SSPL issue for uh, Hashi. Yeah, maybe. I mean, this is most likely done at the provider level anyway. And so like, there's no enterprise offering of providers. They're, they're all open source. Largely, I think this is a good thing for those teams who have to manage something like an internal private catalog, just because I can only imagine that if it's UI driven and you need to create curated marketplaces for distinct orgs, you're doing 50 to 100 of them, depending on the size of your business, which is sounds mind-numbing. No, thank you. It does. Pass. It does. Speaking of mind-numbing, we're moving mm, on to Adrian. Yeah, hang on, i got to set my alarm for 10 minutes or so to wake me up just in case. <laughs> 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 we've got we've got a lot of Azure news, and some of it's not so exciting. Some of it's interesting. We'll we'll see how you guys feel about it. First of all, though, is that they announced three new vertical cloud offerings, including the financial services cloud, the manufacturing cloud, and the nonprofit cloud, feeding right into my 2021 prediction that the verticalization cloud will continue in a strong, strong way. The manufacturing and nonprofit cloud is kind of lame, in my opinion. They didn't really do anything special there, but in the financial services, they do have a new feature called Loan Manager, which will enable lenders to close loans faster by streamlining workflows and increasing transparency through automation and collaboration. Again, this is just kind of what we kind of expect to see. I might have lived in Seattle for a long time and seen how Microsoft took down Novelle and many others through the same technique, which is why I was pretty strongly believe in this strategy. And it just makes sense that Azure is going to lead this way first. I think others will follow mm. very soon. I mean, it's a big business move, so like it makes sense. Yeah, you just everything gets easy because now I have, I have vertical cloud that gives me all the things I need for financial services. What's the same thing you have for this? Uh, this is financial services cloud. It's different. It's, it's completely it's really separate. Different. Yeah, completely. If they do make it that separated, then people will be mad about that. Well, I don't have access to this thing over here that everyone else has access to, and then you know that becomes another. Yeah, it'll be cloud in other ways. Microsoft is announcing the first data center region in Indonesia as part of their. I'm going to book this. I apologize right now. <laughs> the Berdeakan Ekonomi Digital Indonesia Initiative. 
I got that <laughs> wrong, I'm sure. So Microsoft will build its first data center region in Indonesia to deliver trusted cloud services locally with world-class data security, privacy, and the ability to store data in the country, as well as they are apparently announcing plans to scale additional 3 million Indonesians to achieve its its uh, goal of empowering over 24 million Indonesians by the end of 2021 through its HITS established skills program designed to create economic opportunities in the digital era. I mean, between all the different countries that... Asia has decided to open a region and then train millions of people. There's going to be a whole new generation of Microsoft people out there. That's all I see. Here. I just want to know how it takes 3 million people to run a data center. That's it, right? Crazy amount. I, I think Microsoft have a massive call center in Indonesia. That's probably a significant portion of those 3 million people. <laughs> yeah, they didn't say what they're training them into. Right? <laughs> you know, they're not necessarily high trained <laughs> engineering jobs. We don't, we don't really know those details, but... Apparently, Azure is saw what Google's doing and killing products left and right. And, you know, there's a whole Twitter following killed by Google. Azure kind of felt like they want to get into the mix. And so they have announced a slew of product deprecations. It's things like as simple as switch to the Azure Data Lake storage Gen 2 by February 29th, February 2024. They're retiring classic Azure Migrate on February 29th, 2024. You know, nothing really earth shattering, but just enough annoyance to break all of your integrations and products. Probably the one that I was most concerned about for customers was Jenkins plugins for Azure being retired on February 29th, 2024. And then I realized all of these are happening on February 29th, 2024, which then I was like, wait, February 29th is, oh, 2024 is a leap year. And then it's like, oh, tell me your product doesn't support leap year without telling me your product doesn't support (laughs) leap year. This is a really beautiful way to do that. So we will have these in the show notes, all of these, so you can see if your service has been deprecated. But there's been a slew of them. I definitely highly recommend everything from PowerShell modules to application insights, all kinds of messy, messy things. If you're using these, that'll potentially cause you issues if you're not upgrading to the latest version of them or moving to the new APIs. I thought it was a practical joke when I saw it, like February 29th, 2024. I'm like, that's not a real day. Turns out it's a real day. Yeah, at least it can... Only every four at least years. Give people three years' notice, though. That's uh, at least slightly courteous. You would think so. <laughs> I mean, Amazon's given notice years in advance too, and then still mm-hmm. un uncancelled. Well, because nobody pays attention until you know their their account manager reminds them like three weeks beforehand. Hey guys, we noticed you still haven't done this thing which mm-hmm. we told you about three years ago, and then it's a fire drill. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like these weren't published in a blog post. These were just in the Asia News RSS feed. Like, oh, these things are be deprecated. Like, yeah, how do you find out that this is happening to you? before it's happening to you tomorrow. It's one of those things that, you know, that script that's under Lisa's desk that's doing all our performance monitoring for our APIs. Yeah. That's still calling into the service. So maybe you want to fix that? Yeah. Yeah. Who needs that application gateway analytics? (laughs) I don't need that. Apparently I don't need it after February 29th. So there you go. All right. Well, Ignite happened and there was a lot to talk about. First up is if you are an Azure Arc customer, and Azure Arc, for those of you who don't remember, is basically the, your ability to buy hardware from anyone, Dell, HP, Cisco, and then run Azure on top of that in any configuration you want to. And this is was what basically became Outpost for everyone else Azure did before that with their hardware partners, which Microsoft's always had a pretty strong hardware partnership relationship. We talked about that in the Go, HPE and Microsoft Going to Space show a couple weeks ago. It just makes sense. So they're expanding this Azure Arc capability with the new innovations, including the ability to run your Azure machine learning via Azure Arc, Kubernetes through Azure Arc enabled Kubernetes, and a CNCF conformant version of Kubernetes can be managed by the Azure Arc now as well. So all great enhancements if you're in the Azure Arc space and really excited about running basically the equivalent of OpenStack, but for Microsoft in your data center. It's like a big anticlimax of an announcement, really, isn't it? It's like we're going back to 
25 years ago when people used to run Microsoft tools in their data centers. Now we're back to running Microsoft tools in your data centers again, like Microsoft OS, Microsoft applications, Microsoft services. But with a control plane in the cloud, that's different. Yeah. <laughs> and it, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a whole new paradigm, Jonathan. I don't know what you're talking about. Like before we had to run that stuff internally and it was a nightmare. We had to run AD. Now we just run all that stuff in the cloud and it's magic running mm-hmm. in my data center. You know, it's beautiful. And it's two different flavors of Kubernetes, Jonathan. Come on, two different ones. And then if this doesn't make you happy enough, then we can sell you Azure Stack. And then you basically get Azure Outpost, but Azure Stack is Azure Outpost. So that's basically what you're getting out of that scenario. So, you know, lots of opportunities to run Azure in your cloud because Azure believed in hybrid before anybody else did. Well, of course, uh, no conference could be without a ton of AI and data announcements. And so Azure, of course, has several of them. First up is the Azure SNS Pathway, which is with a few clicks, customers can scan their source systems and automatically translate existing scripts into T-SQL for all of your ETL Teradata needs. They'll take code from Teradata, Snowflake, Netezza, Redshift, SQL Server, and Google BigQuery and translate that to native T-SQL for you. So you can then run all those code in SQL Server. Usually these tools get built to convert the old stuff to the new stuff. This is like going back in the opposite direction again. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you really yeah. want SQL? Well, we got this T-SQL converter yeah. for you. How That's you know great. the database administrators have won? It's like you will pry T-SQL out of their cold, dead hands, man. Uh, Next up in this space was Azure Purview, Azure's tool to let customers discover and govern data better than ever before. And they released this back in December. But now at Ignite, they're extending it to scan and classify data residing in Amazon S3, as well as data residing in on-premise Oracle DBs and SAP ERP instances. Uh, So this is basically Macy, but for the Azure space. And again, if you're in this space, we recommend talking to our sponsor, OpenRaven, who has a much better product for all of this. But I'm just saying, they're not sponsoring this episode, but they have been a sponsor in the past, and I still highly (laughs) recommend them, so do check them out. Next up was an Azure managed instance for Cassandra to make it easier to take Cassandra workloads to Azure, because that's what I want to do. And then in a disappointing announcement, they've announced Azure Cosmos DB now provides you MongoDB for transaction support, which is only disappointing because it is not Azure Cosmos DB with MongoDB compatibility, which is really a missed opportunity on Microsoft's part. I just, I, I can't believe they wouldn't do that. And then the Azure Synapse link for Cosmos DB, which enables real-time analytics on operational data from Azure Cosmos DB Core API and the API for MongoDB. The Azure Cache for Redis uh, Enterprise, or now GA. Cognitive Search, which is their new cloud search service built with AI for all the people trying to do semantic search. We don't want to use Elasticsearch. This might be a good option for you. And then Azure Migrate has now been added with the capability to automatically tell you that your workload is going to cost you a crap ton in Azure by impacting your cloud SQL migration by assessing the SQL source and destination landscape and providing you integrated SQL recommendations and your cost estimates all in the data space. I wonder how much they bill for that last one because I can do that. <laughs> that can be expensive. Know. You know, like that's the... <laughs> <laughs> don't do it <laughs> all roads lead to expenses that's all i got that yeah, one i can no. see yeah i can see aiml yeah. mm-hmm. the whole bunch of database yeah. stuff cool azure percept is a new uh, intelligence from silicon to service capability comprehensive easy to use platform with added security for creating responsible edge ai solutions the azure percept helps you get started prototyping in minutes getting real-time edge ai insights for quick decision making and analytics when and where the action occurs to help speed the development of your solutions and a new azure percept studio helps you do all of this magic on the edge with ai which i don't know who those people are but i'm sure you're excited <laughs> i mean i think the reason you put it on the edge is just to get closer to your customers and so whatever interaction that it's being changed. I mean, the only thing I can think of here is Call of Duty bots that need to make twitchy choices faster <laughs> to shoot you. That's all I can think of. Like, 
you know, like real-time decisions that rely on a human to make the decision. Like it's just sometimes the wording they use in these announcements, I'm just like, I don't what's what's the real-time edge solution I'm trying to do with AI, you know, that doesn't require some type of human. Somewhere. So when I think about AI, you know, I just replace that with deeply nested if statements, and then it all makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But it, only if you know yeah. those particular uses. Yeah, I kind of feel like if it's that real-time critical, then it doesn't want to be a cloud service at all. It wants to be a device that you're running in your vehicle, in your home, in someplace else, somewhere really important, rather than being cloud. I mean, you might be dependent on connectivity and the unpredictable latency of the internet if it really is that mission critical. Well, because you don't want to manage the hardware layer, which you have to do otherwise. And so like, you can run on commodity hardware on a phone or whatever solution you want, and then you, you're in more of control because it's in your on your edge, at least. Mm. Well, remember how I recommended you all check out the Andy Jassy keynote and the Warner Vogels keynote at reInvent? And before that, I recommended some of the other keynotes that have happened. I can tell you, I do not recommend watching the Satya Nadella keynote. It's 22 minutes, the most dry 22 minutes I've ever seen in my entire life. He basically breaks down five attributes that he says will drive the next generation of innovation from the cloud. And I will give you these five as Jonathan rolls his eyes so hard you hear it. On the Hang podcast. On. I need to put a peg up my nose so I don't smell the bush. <laughs> uh, so, the, so saving you 22 minutes by giving you five attributes that he summarized in here. Basically, the first one is ubiquitous and decentralized computing for any use case. Second one is sovereign data and ambient intelligent, which means we put the cloud in your backyard. Empowered creators and communities everywhere, which, you know, based on the Indonesia thing might make sense because they're training 3 million people in every country they're going into trying to get power creators, apparently. The fourth one is expanded economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce. Again, kind of go back to the last one. It seems like three and four are sort of the same, but, you know, whatever. And then the last one, trust by design. That is how Satya Nadella says they will drive the next generation of innovation from wow. the cloud. What are you going to do with three million no-code developers? <laughs> That's a whole lot of. They're not be writing that's a whole lot of citizens. Uh, yeah. that's, that's, that's a whole lot of Excel, Excel licenses right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah wasn't the most visionary thank you speech. Justin for saving us from that because you got to me before I watched it which I appreciate falling on that grenade you're welcome yeah I, it was the afternoon I had a good 30 minutes and I was like oh this is a short 20 minutes perfect and then I listened to it and I was like oh this is killing me and then of course I got in my mailbox you know from Microsoft the summary of the keynote which had these already summarized I didn't have to watch it either but you know I had already taken the bullet for you all yeah so and then, actually, I think this is kind of a cool announcement for some use cases, not the ones they expressed in the talk, but this is the new Microsoft Mesh, which is a new mixed reality platform powered by Azure that allows people in different physical locations to join collaborative and shared holographic experiences on many kinds of devices. And this is really a use case for HoloLens and really where HoloLens is, HoloLens is trying to get to, I think, long term. The new platform is ruled of years of Microsoft research and development in areas ranging from hand and eye tracking and HoloLens development to create persistent holograms and artificial intelligence models that can create expressive avatars. Uh, they talked about two use cases and actually hinted to the third. So the one that I was not excited about is the Altspace VR, which allows companies to hold meetings and work gatherings in virtual reality with enterprise-grade security features, including secure sign-in, session management, and privacy compliance. Luckily, if you use Altspace VR, it does include automatic pants service, so you don't have to worry about Boo. Ryan. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to wear pants, but your avatar yeah. will wear pants. That's the key I thing. I don't like this. <sighs> yeah, I, I don't know that I want to put on my HoloLens goggles and then have a meeting in a virtual conference room. <laughs> I, 
I mean, like, I thought Zoom was bad. This seems yeah. so much worse. Second, yeah. life, second Life meets Zoom. It's like, really? <laughs> the next one up they talked about was the Ocean X Laboratory, which is a deep sea vessel, and that they use it on the board, the boat, to basically, when they, f- they discover a new object, they get all the 3D scans, then they go into a 3D workspace with all the scientists and researchers on the boat and basically they can kind of interact with whatever they found on the deep sea mission. I think that's kind of a cool use case. I get that one. And then Niantic, which is of course the maker of Pokemon go provided demonstration of a proof of concept that runs Pokemon go on the HoloLens too, which that is actually kind of cool. Yeah. If we're going to do, you know, augmented reality stuff, like really you're going to make me go to a meeting like, Oh my God, (laughs) aren't they bad enough? Like, I mean, the whiteboard still won't work. You know it won't. Like, it's just going to be all kinds of badness. But I mean, my drawings on whiteboards are bad yeah. in person. I can't imagine my virtual <laughs> avatar whiteboard drawing is going to be even worse. <laughs> it's like trying to draw what you need in, like, Microsoft Paint or something. Yeah, it's, I may as well be doing. Like, I drew, I drew a box to represent a SQL database. Like, is that a box like a or is that a trapezoid? <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know what that Some is. Some of those use cases look really cool in the video. Though. You know, they've got, like, surgical use cases and things. I'm just waiting for the first doctor who has to talk to a, a patient's relative and tell them that they died because there was a blue screen mm-hmm. appeared right in their thoracic cavity as they were about ready to do something. You know, it's like... <laughs> I Someone don't, I don't microwaved know. a burrito <laughs> and it, it killed the Wi-Fi. And <laughs> sorry... They, they're going to connect it to the Da Vinci machine and do surgery through VR and augmented reality. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not so great. About to snip something and uh, like, reboot it for a Windows update or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was it from Ignite. I'm glad we didn't do a prediction show on that. I wouldn't have no. any of those. Oh, yeah, was, I, don't, I, don't I mean, I don't know. The, they've been hucking this VR since last Reignite, actually. So that was when I learned about it. it was, I guess, a full year ago. I'm sure that the, the product team behind this was like, it's our time. <laughs> it's our moment in this world. Yeah. <laughs> well, in the video, they talk about they were going to make a big splash with this mesh technology at Mobile World Congress. And then they had all these sad engineers in this empty room in the Mobile World Congress saying, then they canceled the conference for coronavirus. Yeah. I was like, well, yeah. So I mainly they've been sitting on this for a yeah, while. And I'm not actually sure if the name is Mesh, because based on that video, it's Mesh. And, you know, they already have Mesh and Service Mesh. And so I don't know. It's too much conflict. It looks really neat. I would like to play with it, but they, they do need to bring the price down from. $3,000 to something more reasonable. I mean, I, the $3,000 unit is still the developer unit, so it, they're not ready for prime time on this in any way, shape, or form. But you know, as long as it stays at $3,000 price tag, I don't have to do VR meetings, so I'll, I'll stick with that price tag for now. All right, well, we have come to the lightning round. Peter is not here to lead us, and so he said we could do it without him, but not point it. And I say, that's yeah. shenanigans. No. We'll point it if we want that's to, right. Peter, because you're not here, and this is a fake game, anyways, that yeah, we play. We'll this up on the internet for fake points and fake internet. You know, I just I, we're going to do it the way we want to do it. I think Ryan, I think you volunteered as the only having one point uh, as the person who's going to take yes. us through. Oh, are we going to vote on who gets the point at the end of the show, or how are we going to do this? How are we going to make it? No, fair? no. If I'm subbing in for Peter, I get full reign. Yeah, I think Ryan gets to pick. It's not going to help him get catch up to you or I because we're tied. Well, for, I mean, if, if you put him, in, put him in there's charge, no, there's no reason why it only is worth one point. Yeah. Huh? I'm about that's to true. win this I mean, right here. Right <laughs> yeah, that's true. There you go. I mean, then Peter will change the rules yeah, on the next it'll be, week. It'll it be just ne- goes down. It just goes down from a million there. points that turns into an arms race. So. Uh, are you also making comments yeah, or exactly. uh, are, you just, are you just the adjudicator? Well, that depends if I have anything funny to say, which is you know that's, debatable at the best of times. That's, so. <laughs> that's a good position to be in. No, ex- no expectations. Can't go wrong. Yeah. Set the bar low. Over deliver. <laughs> if at all. You know, it could be my motto. I should get that tattooed on my forehead. Hang on, I'm making I'm making a list. Actually, I've got a running list of t-shirts I'm going to make. Over deliver. 
if at all. We're going to have a whole cloud pod range of shirts. <laughs> yeah. Stay tuned to the so, so we've got the YAML shirt, we've got the Pry-T sequel out of my cold dead hands, and then we got over the river door. So we've got three shirts coming out soon. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So here we go. AWS Config now supports Amazon Container Services. I can't wait to see those config changes of spaces in my YAML files as I tried to get my YAML to work in Kubernetes. <laughs> it's been great. Oh, three spaces. Oh, now six. Nope, I needed five. Darn it. I'm not going to compete for that. <laughs> <laughs> Amazon Elasticsearch service now supports roll-up, reducing storage costs for extended retention. Roll-ups? I wish it supported joints. <laughs> <laughs> I can't Ooh, touch that. Yeah. That's, that's too TLS 1.2 will be required for all AWS FIPS endpoints beginning March 31st, 2021. It's so nice that they announced TLS 1.2 support for FIPS endpoints they just announced last year. Like, why did it not support TLS 1.2 only last year? <laughs> is TLS 1.2 new? Did I miss something? No, it is not. No, it's like 12 years old by now. <laughs> yeah, so why this was not a requirement day one for these FIPS endpoints, which were such a big deal because they're so secure. I know we, we support TLS 1.1 for some strange reason. We forgot. You can now seamlessly connect customers and businesses with Azure Communication Services and Microsoft Teams. Even Microsoft has learned that their customers don't want to use Teams. And so now they're obfuscating Teams away from you with APIs. So you don't have to force it on your customers, but your users internally still have to use it to support your customers. <laughs> Thank you, Microsoft. It seems Justin's correct. <laughs> Google is bringing your GKE logs to the GKE cloud console. Where did they go before? To the, the garbage can? Like, where else would they have gone? No file. You didn't need those logs anyway. I mean, container started, container uh-huh. stable, container yeah. crashed. Like, what? I mean, they're yeah. not that great at logs, anyways, to begin with. So, yeah, basically, bringing the console, they don't have to go to Stackdriver interface to get it instead, or whatever we call Stackdriver nowadays. Oh, yeah, it's got that ubiquitous name I'll never remember now. Cloud monitoring. That's right. Yeah wonder <laughs> ubiquitous name you couldn't remember <laughs> that's another t-shirt <laughs> <laughs> google's the easiest one to come up with like what do they name their their service oh instance compute instances oh okay yeah. that makes sense yeah versus you know you go to amazon they're like that's the amazing magical fairy dust service aws code pipeline now supports 1000 pipelines per account if your pipeline requires a thousand pipes, I think you need to probably reevaluate your life. Do <laughs> so remember all those YAML files I talked about earlier? Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is how you manage all. Do you think config manages those? <laughs> those YAML mm. files too? I don't know. Amazon EKS now supports adding KMS envelope encryption to existing clusters to enhance security for secrets. Because nothing says security like writing your secrets on the back of an envelope and then hoping and with the data in the envelope. I never really understood this whole nomenclature of naming. It's one that's perplexed me for years now. I'm like, why do we call it envelope encryption? It's so weird. It, it doesn't make sense in the real world. Like, this is not a secure solution. Why is this secure in the cloud? <laughs> it envelops like a blob, like blob storage. No. Uh, okay. The blob. <laughs> Microsoft PowerFX, the open source, low code programming language, is in public preview. It's Excel. Like, how is it open source? <laughs> I was like, I was thinking, I was getting excited. Like, is it is it a new version of Visual Basic with less code? No, no, it's Excel. Mm-hmm. 
I was trying to figure out Power Effects is not as exciting as whatever I try to come up with Visual Studio. Like, what do you call Visual Studio Code when it's no code? And I try to come up with other things. Power Effects is not where I went, so it's, it's disappointing. Yeah, Power Effects seems like from a bygone era, like one of those things. Like, why do I think it should have been Citizen Studio since they're citizen developers? It's actually pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I know it's a joke, but, you know, Citizen Studio is pretty funny. Uh, there goes the fifth shirt in the series. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> the AWS Lambda console now features a new navigation design. So uh, Matthew Cohen, friend of the show, posted this on our Slack channel that I should check this out so I could do it. And I, I teased him because he hadn't listened to 105 where I live tweeted through some other interface. I don't remember at this moment, but I went with hesitation to go look at the Lambda console. And I realized this is just a rollback of the last console update they did for Lambda because people hated it so much. So it looks just like the old version two versions ago. So it's yeah. great. I actually like this one. Yeah, no, it's it went back to the more reasonable choice. If you go back to the one I like that I didn't have any complaints about, I'm all for your new UI. Thank you. I mean, new navigation design is a bit of a stretch, but, you know. <laughs> Amazon Lambda Console now features the old navigation design. And I'd be like, yes, that's great. Let's do this one. <laughs> yeah, missed opportunity. <laughs> missed opportunities. Yeah, and that is all we got. I think the, the winner is pretty clear. Even I can't give myself a million points with Jonathan's Elasticsearch joke. So, you know, he very clearly gets the points. Yes. <laughs> nice. Nicely done. It's hard to beat yeah, a pot joke. Exactly. I think I had to go with that this week. But that's fine. So I, I have a thing that I did for you guys because I was so annoyed at this announcement from Google. And so basically they released 21 cloud tools with two minute videos. They call these cloud bites. I think we've talked about this before. They're not terrible. I don't hate them. Like I have the concept, especially for someone learning new Google products. But two minutes times 21 cloud tools, that's 42 minutes of my life to watch every one of these videos. And they're really not that helpful videos. Like if you actually watch one of them, like it's very high level, like you could have read it. So I decided that I would give you the basic answer to these questions, you know, what these 21 cloud tools do in less than five minutes. So I can save you basically 37 minutes. And so that'll do, Ryan, I would like you to tease up each of these and I'll give you my short description of what I think this tool is and why you should use it. Number one, big query. This is the thing you use to get past that 1 million row limitation of Microsoft Excel and gives you a SQL interface to boot. Number two, file store. This is NFS for Windows admins who really wanted SMB but didn't understand the difference of it. Three, local SSD. It's like a RAM disk that will screw you when you save all your important data on the instance and it gets terminated, resulting in you getting terminated. Number four, persistent disk. This is if you actually care about your data and you don't want to get terminated because you care about your data. Five, cloud storage. This is for those enlightened few who figured out that the file trees, inodes, and blocks are artificial constructs that just hold us back in the world. And all they really wanted was an HTTP URL to access that file. Six, Anthos. A great way to light money on fire running Kubernetes on-premise or in another cloud. <laughs> <laughs> Number seven, Google Kubernetes Engine, GKE. How to take a simple concept like containers and make it super complicated in three easy clicks and orchestration. Number eight, Compute Engine. These are the things you used to order from Dell or HPE through VMware on top of, and that might be why those companies aren't doing so well these days. Nine, Cloud Run. This is what you do when you learn you're moving to the cloud. You just run away. <laughs> or, you know, the oxymoron of serverless runs on servers. That's, that's also as well. Number 10, App Engine. 
this is the tool for all you no ops workloads. You know, when you don't think you need operations, you'll replace this in about six months. <laughs> 11 cloud functions. This is events, functions, codes, and it scales. Oh my. 12 Firestore. A document DB that runs on mobile but doesn't store Word docs. 13 Cloud Spanner. Vendor lock in at the global scale. 14 Cloud SQL. A database for those allergic to vendor lock-in, but only if you like Postgres, SQL, and Microsoft flavors because Oracle threatened to audit them if they supported Oracle. 15. Memory Store. Because you didn't learn your lesson from them, ephemeral local SSD will give you the networking version of it, how to get fired quickly at your day job. 16. Big Table. No SQL, but with a SQL interface for BigQuery. 17. BigQuery ML. Machine learning via SQL. 18. Data flow. Process lots of data really fast, resulting in big bills really fast. 19. Cloud PubSub. PubSub Hubbub, both a less complex name and easier than Kafka. 20. Data proc. Something something Hadoop and Spark. Honestly, I'm not even sure what this one is. <laughs> and finally, 21. Data fusion. ETL for citizen developers. No bespoke developers required. Excellent. Very nice. Nicely done. You're Thank welcome. you for my 37 minutes of life back. Yeah, I don't know if I had quite five minutes, but I yeah. thought it was close. I think I ruined your... Uh, yeah, it's sort of... It's my fault. I'll take it. We should have okay. timed it. That's all right. We, we should have, but, but why would we yeah, time no, something no. so simple? It was an app engine, though. You replace it. Yeah. <laughs> that one. Yeah, no, that's fun. They are worth checking out if you're new to the cloud, but uh, I simplified it for you. So there you go. That's it for this week. Microsoft Unite is long past us now, but Google announced a Google Cloud Born Digital Summit on March 25th at 2.30 a.m. to 5 a.m. Pacific time, because it's actually meant for the European audience, <laughs> uh, which is 10.30 a.m. in London, which is much more reasonable for those London people and anyone else in the Europe. And there are three tracks, data, architecture, and customers. With a keynote from Urs Holes, SVP of Technical Infrastructure, and a VC panel with Capital G and Diversity and Tech panel hosted by Karina Govinj, the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in EMEA. So check that out if you're in the EMEA region. I will not be joining you at 2.30 in the morning because I'm not a sadist. <laughs> and all good things will come to those who want to go do that. So enjoy that. If you're in the Europe region, tell us how it is on the CloudPod Slack cham team. And tell us if we missed anything important that we should have been up at 2.30 in the morning for, which I think the answer will be no. But uh, I've been surprised before. You never know. With Jonathan and I, we might be up anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You guys, were, you guys like to work crazy hours. Well, I mean, so. it made the last opportunity to catch a, a, another Google female speaker before they fire her. So, you know, maybe worth getting yeah. up for anyway. <laughs> That's true. Is she involved ethics? in you know, uh, the equity? The irony of firing the people responsible for ethics is just, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not no, a good look. Really not. I miss the irony as a service announcement. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> All right. Well, that's another fantastic week here in the cloud world. We'll see you next week on the Cloud Pod. Thanks, guys. Bye, everybody. And that is the week in cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag the cloud pod or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net for sign up instructions. Mm-hmm.